Hey guys, welcome back to another World Audiobooks. So very excited to be with you here again today, starting a brand new story in the Sherlock Holmes memoirs. So I hope you guys are enjoying the book so far. Remember to join the Sherlock competition. That is still available, still open. I know it's been going for a really long time here. Um, man, when did we start this book? Goodness, it was like back in March. <laughs> a lot of things have changed uh, in the world since March, but the contest is still open, so if you want to do that, Leaving a rating review helps a ton, and I really appreciate it, and you'll get entered into the drawing for those three free, or four free audiobooks. So you can't beat that. So get get in on the action there, and enjoy The Resident Patient. Nine, The Resident Patient. In glancing over the somewhat incoherent series of memoirs with which I have endeavoured to illustrate a few of the mental peculiarities of my friend, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, I have been struck by the difficulty which I have experienced in picking out examples which in every way answer my purpose. For in those cases in which Holmes has performed some tour de force of analytical reasoning, and has demonstrated the value of his peculiar methods of investigation, the facts themselves have often been so slight or so commonplace that I could not feel justified in laying them before the public. On the other hand, it has frequently happened that he has been concerned in some research where the facts have been of the most remarkable and dramatic character, but where the share which he has himself taken in determining their cause has been less pronounced than I, as his biographer, could wish. The small matter which I have chronicled under the heading of A Study in Scarlet, and that other later one connected with the loss of the glorious Scott, may serve as examples of this Scylla and Charybdis which are forever threatening the historian. It may be that, in the business of which I am now about to write, the part which my friend played is not sufficiently accentuated, and yet the whole train of circumstances is so remarkable that I cannot bring myself to omit it entirely from this series. I cannot be sure of the exact date, for some of my memoranda upon the matter have been mislaid, but it must have been towards the end of the first year during which Holmes and I shared chambers in Baker Street. It was boisterous October weather, and we had both remained indoors all day, I because I feared with my shaken health to face the keen autumn wind, while he was deep in some of those obtruse chemical investigations which absorbed him utterly as long as he was engaged upon them. Towards evening, however, the breaking of a test-tube brought his research to a premature ending, and he sprang up from his chair with an exclamation of impatience and a clouded brow. "'A day's work ruined, Watson,' said he, striding across to the window. "'Ha! The stars are out and the wind has fallen. What do you say to a ramble through London?' I was weary of our little sitting-room, and gladly acquiesced. For three hours we strolled about together, watching the ever-changing kaleidoscope of life as it ebbs and flows through Fleet Street and the Strand. Holmes had shaken off his temporary ill-humour, and his characteristic talk, with its keen observance of detail and subtle power of inference, held me amused and enthralled. It was ten o'clock before we reached Baker Street again. A broom was waiting at our door. "'Hmm, a doctor's general practitioner, I perceive,' said Holmes. Not been long in practice, but has had a good deal to do. Come to consult us, I fancy. Lucky we came back. I was sufficiently conversant with Holmes's methods to be able to follow his reasoning, and to see that the nature and state of the various medical instruments in the wicker basket, which hung in the lamplight beside the broom, had given him the data for his swift deduction. The light in our window above showed that this late visit was indeed intended for us. 
With some curiosity as to what could have sent a brother medico to us at such an hour, I followed Holmes into our sanctum. A pale, tapered-faced man with sandy whiskers rose up from a chair by the fire as we entered. His age may not have been more than three or four and thirty, but his haggard expression and unhealthy hue told of a life which had sapped his strength and robbed him of his youth. His manner was nervous and shy, like that of a sensitive gentleman, and the thin white hand which he laid on the mantelpiece as he rose was that of an artist rather than of a surgeon. His dress was quiet and sombre, a black frock coat, dark trousers, and a touch of colour about the necktie. "'Good evening, doctor,' said Holmes cheerily. "'I am glad to see that you have only been waiting a very few minutes.' "'You spoke to my coachman, then?' "'No, it was the candle on the side-table that told me. Pray resume your seat, and let me know how I can serve you.' "'My name is Dr. Percy Trevelyan,' said our visitor. "'And I live at 403 Brook Street.' "'Are you not the author of a monograph about obscure nervous lesions?' I asked. His pale cheeks flushed with pleasure at hearing that his work was known to me. "'I so seldom hear of the work that I thought it was quite dead,' said he. "'My publisher gave me a most discouraging account for its sale. You are yourself, I presume, a medical man?' "'A retired army surgeon.' "'My own hobby has always been nervous disease. "'I should wish to make it an absolute specialty, "'but, of course, a man must take what he can get at first. "'This, however, is besides the question, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, "'and I quite appreciate how valuable your time is. "'The fact is that a very singular train of events "'has occurred recently at my house in Brook Street, "'and tonight they came to such a head that I felt it was quite impossible for me to wait another hour before asking for your advice and assistance. Sherlock Holmes sat down and lit his pipe. You are very welcome to both, said he. Pray, let me have a detailed account of what the circumstances are which have disturbed you. One or two of them are so trivial, said Dr. Trevelyan, that really I am almost ashamed to mention them, but the matter is so inexplicable, and the recent turn which it has taken is so elaborate that I shall lay it all before you, and you shall judge what is essential and what is not. I am compelled, to begin with, to say something of my own college career. I am a London University man, you know, and I am sure that you will not think that I am unduly singing my own praises if I say that my student career was considered by my professors to be a very promising one. After I graduated, I continued to devote myself to research, occupying a minor position at King's College Hospital, and I was fortunate enough to excite considerable interest by my research into the pathology of catalepsy, and finally to win the Bruce Pinkerton Prize and Medal by the monograph on nervous lesions to which your friend has just alluded. I should not go too far if I were to say that there was a general impression at that time that a distinguished career lay before me. But the one great stumbling-block lay in my way of capital. As you will readily understand, a specialist who aims high is compelled to start in one of a dozen streets in the Cavendish Square quarter, all of which entail enormous rents and furnishing expenses. Besides this preliminary outlay, he must be prepared to keep himself for some years, and to hire a presentable carriage and horse— to do this was quite beyond my power, and I could only hope that by economy I might in ten years' time save enough to enable me to put up my plate. 
Suddenly, however, an unexpected incident opened up quite a new prospect for me. This was a visit from a gentleman of the name of Blessington, who was a complete stranger to me. He came up to my room one morning and plunged into business in an instant. You are the same Percy Trevelyan who has had so distinguished a career and won a great prize lately, said he. I bowed. Answer me frankly, he continued, for you will find it of your interest to do so. You have all the cleverness which makes a successful man. Have you the tact? I could not help smiling at the abruptness of the question. I trust that I have my share, I said. Any bad habits? Not drawn towards drink, eh? Really, sir, I cried. Quite right, that's all right. But I was bound to ask, with all these qualities, why are you not in a good practice? I shrugged my shoulders. Come, come, said he, in his bustling way. It's the old story, more in your brains than in your pocket, eh? But what would you say if I were to start you in Brook Street? I stared at him in astonishment. Oh, it's for my sake, not for yours, he cried. I'll be perfectly frank with you, and if it suits you, it will suit me very well. I have a few thousand to invest, do you see, and I think I'll sink them in you. But why? I gasped. Well, it's just like any other speculation, and safer than most. What am I to do, then? I'll tell you. I'll take the house, furnish it, pay the maids, and run the whole place. All you have to do is just to wear out your chair in the consulting room. I'll let you have pocket money and everything. Then you hand over to me three quarters of what you earn, and you keep the other quarter for yourself. This was the strange proposal, Mr. Holmes, with which the man Blessington approached me. I won't weary you with the account of how we bargained and negotiated. It ended in my moving into the house next Lady Day, and starting in practice on very much the same conditions as he had suggested. He came himself to live with me in the character of a resident patient. His heart was weak, it appears, and he needed constant medical supervision. He turned the two best rooms of the first floor into a sitting-room and bedroom for himself. He was a man of singular habits, shunning company and very seldom going out. His life was irregular, but in one respect he was regularity itself. Every evening, at the same hour, he walked into the consulting-room, examined the books, put down five and three pence for every guinea that I had earned, and carried the rest off to the strong-box in his own room. I may say with confidence that he never had occasion to regret his speculation. From the first it was a success. A few good cases, and the reputation which I had won in the hospital, brought me rapidly to the front, and during the last few years I have made him a rich man. So much, Mr. Holmes, for my past history, and my relations with Mr. Blessington. It only remains for me now to tell you what has occurred to bring me here to-night. Some weeks ago, Mr. Blessington came down to me in, as it seemed to me, a state of considerable agitation. He spoke of some burglary which, he said, had been committed in the West End, and he appeared, I remember, to be quite unnecessarily excited about it, declaring that a day would not pass before we should add stronger bolts to our windows and doors. For a week he continued to be in a peculiar state of restlessness, peering continually out of the window, and ceasing to take the short walk which had usually been the prelude to his dinner. From his manner it struck me that he was in mortal dread of something or somebody, but when I questioned him upon the point he became so offensive that I was compelled to drop the subject. Gradually, as time passed, his fears appeared to die away, and he had renewed his former habits, when a fresh event reduced him to the pitiable state of prostration in which he now lies. What happened was this. 
Two days ago, I received the letter which I now read to you. Neither address nor date is attached to it. A Russian nobleman, who is now resident in England, it runs, would be glad to avail himself of the professional assistance of Dr. Percy Trevelyan. He has been for some years a victim to cataleptic attacks on which, as is well known, Dr. Trevelyan is in authority. He proposes to call at about quarter past six tomorrow evening, if Dr. Trevelyan will make it convenient to be at home. This letter interested me deeply, because the chief difficulty in the study of catalepsy is the rareness of the disease. You may believe, then, that I was in my consulting room when, at the appointed hour, the page showed in the patient. He was an elderly man, thin, demure, and commonplace, by no means the conception one forms of a Russian nobleman. I was much more struck by the appearance of his companion. This was a tall young man, surprisingly handsome, with a dark, fierce face, and the limbs and chest of a Hercules. He had his hand under the other's arm as they entered, and helped him to a chair with a tenderness which one would hardly have expected from his appearance. "'You will excuse my coming in, doctor,' said he to me, speaking English with a slight lisp. "'This is my father, and his health is a matter of the most overwhelming importance to me.' I was touched by this filial anxiety. "'You would perhaps care to remain during the consultation,' said I. "'Not for the world,' he cried, with a gesture of horror. "'It is more painful to me than I can express. If I were to see my father in one of these dreadful seizures, I am convinced that I should never survive it.' My own nervous system is an exceptionally sensitive one. With your permission, I will remain in the waiting-room while you go into my father's case. To this, of course, I assented, and the young man withdrew. The patient and I then plunged into a discussion of his case, of which I took exhaustive notes. He was not remarkable for intelligence, and his answers were frequently obscure, which I attributed to his limited acquaintance with our language. Suddenly, however, as I sat writing, he ceased to give any answer at all to my inquiries, and, on my turning towards him, I was shocked to see that he was sitting bolt upright in his chair, staring at me with a perfectly blank and rigid face. He was again in the grip of his mysterious malady. My first feeling, as I have just said, was one of pity and horror. My second, I fear, was rather one of professional satisfaction. I made notes of my patient's pulse and temperature, tested the rigidity of his muscles, and examined his reflexes. There was nothing markedly abnormal in any of these conditions which harmonized with my former experiences. I had obtained good results in such cases by the inhalation of nitrile of amyl, and the present seemed an admirable opportunity of testing his virtues. The bottle was downstairs in my laboratory, so, leaving my patient seated in his chair, I ran down to get it. There was some little delay in finding it, five minutes, let us say, and then I returned. Imagine my amazement to find the room empty and the patient gone. Of course, my first act was to run into the waiting room. The sun had gone also. The hall door had been closed, but not shut. My page, who admits patience, is a new boy and by no means quick. He waits downstairs and runs up to show patience out when I ring the consulting room bell. He had heard nothing, and the affair remained a complete mystery. Mr. Blessington came in from his walk shortly afterwards, but I did not say anything to him upon the subject, for, to tell you the truth, I have got in the way of late of holding as little communication with him as possible. Well, 
I never thought that I should see anything more of the Russian and his son, so you can imagine my amazement when, at the very same hour this evening, they both came marching into my consulting room, just as they had done before. "'I feel that I owe you a great many apologies for my abrupt departure yesterday, doctor,' said my patient. "'I confess that I was very much surprised at it,' said I. "'Well, the fact is,' he remarked, "'that when I recover from these attacks, "'my mind is always very clouded as to all that has gone before. "'I woke up in a strange room, as it seemed to me, "'and made my way out into the street in a sort of dazed way when you were absent.' "'And I,' said the son, seeing my father pass the door of the waiting-room, "'naturally thought that the consultation had come to an end. "'It was not until we had reached home that I began to realise the true state of affairs.' "'Well,' said I, laughing, "'there is no harm done, except that you puzzled me terribly. "'So if you, sir, would kindly step into the waiting-room, "'I shall be happy to continue our consultation, "'which was brought to so abrupt an ending.' For half an hour or so, I discussed that old gentleman's symptoms with him, and then, having prescribed for him, I saw him go off upon the arm of his son. I have told you that Mr. Blessington generally chose this hour of the day for his exercise. He came in shortly afterwards and passed upstairs. An instant later, I heard him running down, and he burst into my consulting room like a man who was mad with panic. "'Who has been in my room?' he cried. "'No one,' said I. "'It is a lie,' he yelled. "'Come up and look.' I passed over the grossness of his language, as he seemed half out of his mind with fear. When I went upstairs with him, he pointed to several footprints upon the light carpet. "'Do you mean to say those are mine?' he cried. They were certainly very much larger than any which he could have made, and were evidently quite fresh. It rained hard this afternoon, as you know, and my patients were the only people who called.' It must have been the case, then, that the man in the waiting-room had, for some unknown reason, while I was busy with the other, ascended to the room of my resident patient. Nothing had been touched or taken, but there were the footprints to prove that the intrusion was an undoubted fact. Mr. Blessington seemed more excited over the matter than I should have thought possible, though, of course, it was enough to disturb anybody's peace of mind. He actually sat crying in an armchair, and I could hardly get him to speak coherently. It was his suggestion that I should come round to you, and of course I at once saw the propriety of it, for certainly the incident is a very singular one, though he appears to completely overrate its importance. If you would only come back with me in my broom, you would at least be able to soothe him, though I can hardly hope that you will be able to explain this remarkable occurrence." Sherlock Holmes had listened to this long narrative with an intentness which showed me that his interest was keenly aroused. His face was as impassive as ever, but his lids had drooped more heavily over his eyes, and his smoke had curled up more thickly from his pipe to emphasize each curious episode in the doctor's tale. As our visitor concluded, Holmes sprang up without a word, handed me my hat, picked up his own from the table, and followed Mr. Trevelyan to the door. All right, thank you guys so much for listening today. I, um, yeah, it's kind of weird. I, I took uh, some time earlier in this, this spring, and I just recorded a ton of episodes. So all the ones you've heard up to now have been, like, they were basically pre-recorded, and I was just kind of running off. So this is actually, like, day before this episode launches. I'm recording this. So I feel, like, more connected to the podcast all of a sudden. And, uh, yeah, missed, missed doing it, and uh, glad to be back in the saddle. It was nice to have that little bit of a break, though. So, hope you guys are enjoying it. Uh, remember, if you 
like the podcast, if you enjoy these free audiobooks, just go ahead and share it with somebody that you know. It's the best way to help the podcast grow, just to tell somebody about it. So if you want to do that, uh, one easy way to do that is just to follow us on social media, and then all the links are down below, and you can uh, share the posts that I post about the new episodes and tell people that you enjoy listening to it. Tag me. I will, I will definitely send you some social media love if you do that. Thanks so much for listening today, guys. Remember, check out the Sherlock competition down below, and we'll talk to you next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When I was in school, I absolutely hated writing. It wasn't until I was a bit older that I came to understand the power of words. If you're a business owner, you understand that power too. A business blog, when done right, can drive sales, increase revenue, and get you more customers. But as a business owner, you probably don't have the time to do all that writing. Plus, if you're not a copywriter by trade, you might feel like you're just kind of throwing words out there and they're not actually accomplishing anything. The good news is, there's a simple solution. Check it out. I call it the ultimate blog post checklist for businesses with online stores. This checklist will allow you to write better, more effective articles that convert readers into buyers. It's full of easy-to-follow examples to get your creativity flowing based on experience of nearly a million words written. And best of all, it's effective on any type of article in any industry or niche. I've successfully used this exact checklist on topics from pool table reviews to investment advice. Tired of spending tons of time writing stuff that doesn't convert? This checklist will change that by giving you highly effective blog posts and articles that transform readers into paying customers. Go to invicta.enterprises slash free checklist and start saving time and transforming your writing now. That's invicta.enterprises slash free checklist. 